Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com, the show that's dedicated to saving you money on buying and owning a vehicle. Now, here's your host, Rick Popley. Welcome, everyone. This is Cars, Trucks, and Bucks, where each week we help you make smarter choices about buying and owning a vehicle and save money. I'm Rick Popley, your host and proprietor. Glad you can join us. The average price of a new car these days is around $30,000, even higher by some estimates. And there aren't many new cars you can drive out the door for less than 15000 Does that mean you're out of luck if you want a new car and have a tight budget? Not necessarily. My guest today will be Tom Appel, the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, an online source for new vehicle reviews, best buy recommendations, prices, and other helpful information. Tom will identify some capable new models that cost less than 20000 and might fit into a small budget. We'll also talk with Tom about used cars, the growth of no-haggle price practices, extended service contracts, and other money-saving topics. But before we help you save money, here's this week's auto news you might be able to use. Which car company spends the least on warranty claims to fix things that go wrong? Honda. That is according to a study released this week in Detroit by consulting firm Stout Rissius Ross. That study says that when warranty claims are measured as a percentage of revenue, Honda spends the least among six major manufacturers measured in the study. BMW was second lowest, followed by Toyota and Ford, which were in a virtual tie for third place. General Motors was close behind Toyota and Ford in fifth place. Volkswagen finished well behind the others in sixth. The study says that Honda spends less than 1% of its revenue on warranty claims. In contrast, Volkswagen spends 3.5%. Honda will end production of the Insight Hybrid this summer. The Insight was the first hybrid sold in the U.S. It arrived in 1999, about seven months before the Toyota Prius. The original Insight was a teardrop-shaped two-seater, but the current one is a more conventional-looking five-passenger hatchback. Though the Insight was the first hybrid, it never really caught on in the U.S., and Honda sold just 4,800 last year. In contrast, Prius sales topped 234,000 in 2013. Honda will continue to offer other hybrids in the U.S., including the CRZ, Civic Hybrid, and the Accord Hybrid and Plug-in Hybrid. Toyota, the largest auto manufacturer in the world, will get help from a much smaller company for its next subcompact to be sold in the U.S. Trade publication Automotive News reported today that a replacement for the Toyota Yaris will be built at a new Mazda plant in Mexico and will be based on the next generation of the Mazda 2. The Toyota version will have its own styling, but will be built on the same architecture as the Mazda 2 and use a Mazda engine. The engine and design for the Mazda 2 will incorporate Mazda's Sky Active technologies that save weight and increase efficiency. Production of the Mazda 2 in Mexico should begin late this year or early 2015. 
Production of a similar Toyota version will start by early 2016. And that is this week's auto news you might be able to use. If you're in the market for a new vehicle, you probably have noticed that the price can quickly hit $20,000 on a small car, a compact like the Honda Civic or Ford Focus, and even on a subcompact like the Ford Fiesta. Many mid-sized cars go for $25,000 or more, and it's hard to find an all-wheel drive SUV for less than $25,000. Small cars with starting prices of under $10,000 are long gone, and you might not even be able to find a late-model used car for ten grand, unless it has 60,000 miles or more on the odometer. Where can a budget-conscious shopper find help? Hey, you came to the right place. Joining me today in the studio is Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, an online site with vehicle reviews, best buy recommendations, and other information that can help car shoppers spend their money wisely. Tom started with Consumer Guide in 2001 as an editor. His previous resume includes stints as a gas station mechanic, car salesman, product specialist at Chrysler, and a market research analyst. He has been publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive since 2012. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, with the average price of a new car now, you know, around $30,000, Yeah. what is the least amount you can reasonably expect to pay for a new car these days? That's a loaded question. Least is a great question only because there's the price that's advertised and then the price with automatic transmission. And, and the leap tends to be greater than just the price of the transmission. Um, but looking around, it seems to be that the lowest you can pay for a car right now is about $13,000. That's if you wanted a Nissan Versa S. But to go to automatic with that car, you're looking at another $1,000. You're at about thirteen eight, And that's kind of a baseline. However, a lot of people are going to want things today that involve connectivity, a USB port, Bluetooth connectivity. If you want that, you usually have to add an option package or go up a trim level. So what I'm seeing here is, is cars advertise as low as 13, 14, 15 grand. But with automatic, realistically, you're at 16, 16, 5, even $17,000 for the cheapest cars in the United States. And if you're looking for those other things, the connectivity tools, you can usually add another 500 to 1,000. What happened to uh, the $10,000 car? I, I, my recollection is that maybe 2011 model year, there were still cars at least listed at $9,995. I think there was a Hyundai Accent, a Chevy Aveo, maybe one other. I think the last one was the previous generation Nissan Versa. Mm-hmm. There was a 1.6 model that came in at 19, or I'm sorry, $9,995. The next year, it was that same price, but they took the destination out. So it went up about $700, Um But what's happened is price compression. We have this, this, this situation now with new cars where it's getting harder and harder and harder to build a low-price car mm-hmm. because everyone's looking for the exact same equipment. New cars now all come with air. People want them with automatic. They tend to come with power windows and door locks. Um, they come with full audio systems, better sound insulation, better NVH uh, systems, plus more airbags than they've ever had before. And, and, and the result is that it's just really harder to get down below a ground floor of fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000. So while uh, there might be mid-sized cars in the low 20s, mm-hmm. it doesn't follow that a subcompact would be half the price because you have to put in all the safety features, 
plus all the wants that consumers have. I think that's a completely reasonable expectation, but no, that, that is not the case anymore. <laughs> okay. And and uh, you, you touched on this. I mean, basically, when you're looking at a small car like the Versa, Chevrolet Spark, something like that, what are you getting? What do you get in the way of features? You don't get a lot of features. What you get is, is, is access to those features if you trade up. Um, you're getting the full suite of safety stuff, which now a lot of people don't know includes anti-lock brakes and, and a skid system standard. Um, but in terms of features, what you're getting, power windows and door locks tend to be standard because manufacturers don't want to build them two ways um, because the volume of these cars is low mm-hmm. enough that, that dealers don't want to stock both kinds. Right. Um, but once you get beyond most of those features, you're going to have to pay more to get that stuff. And, and you run into really interesting situations where there's all this overlap between classes. Subcompact cars now easily get to twenty grand. Mm-hmm. Compact cars easily get to twenty five, and I've seen them over thirty. So <laughs> you're overlapping with, yeah, just an average Honda Accord about twenty five thousand dollars. You can easily get uh, a Ford Focus or a Chevy Cruze past that point. Well, I I I, I have driven recently a Ford Fiesta, a subcompact for mm-hmm. the smallest car, and it was a very well equipped titanium model, the most expensive version, twenty one thousand. And uh, if somebody is buying that car for fuel economy, I mean, it does have higher fuel economy than the next size above in the Ford lineup to focus. Right. Yeah, you know, you do get, but that's false economy if you're spending $21,000, is not it? It is. And, then, and that's more than you can do the starting point of most compacts. And it's really at the, the hairy bottom edge of what you could pay for a, a mid-sized car these days. Okay, so... Uh, you recently wrote an article that kind of highlighted some under $20,000 vehicles. Yes. What are some of those, and why are they ones that you think stand above, say, the herd of uh, low-priced cars? Yeah, a couple of these that I like. The, the Kia Rio was recently redesigned. Um, but what I like about the Kia Rio is, is that fit and finish are high, interior materials are nice, and, and the attention to NVH. It, it's, it's a quiet, smooth-riding um Fairly comfortable vehicle. Uh, starting price right around thirteen six. Uh, automatic transmission will set you back another eleven hundred dollars or so. So you're looking at trying to find or about a final price about fifteen five or so. That's that's about as cheap as you're going to do a car mm. worth owning. <laughs> so so you're dismissing the Spark, <laughs> Chevrolet Spark. I'm not dismissing the Spark and and I'm not dismissing the Versa, uh, but I think that. Your expectations are different. Mm. I think that the experience in the Rio is much more of a mid-sized car, whereas the Spark and the Versa, I think you're paying the price for going cheap. Mm. I th- they're smaller. They have shorter wheelbases. They're easy to park. Um, but ultimately, they feel like small cars. So, um, you know, it, one, one thing that surprises me is that uh, Hyundai, uh, to a large extent, and to similar extent, Kia, were both known as low-price brands. High value, low prices. Yet when I look, you know, a, a Hyundai Accent, I think the cheapest automatic version is about sixteen five. Yeah, it, Accent does not make <clears throat> the ten least expensive cars list. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, and it used to be a price leader. There used to be, at least in theory, a you know under ten thousand dollar version. Right. A few years ago, um, I have to say those, but you know, among those that that we've discussed here. The Accent was the car, the small car, I would probably be most likely to buy because I had to drive one to Indianapolis. And when you drive on Interstate 65 in Indiana at 70, <laughs> 75 miles per hour, 
you know, you notice what's a tin can and what isn't, and that was far from it. That was a very pleasant car, I thought, you know, for, for a subcompact. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the accents, and I, I find that the Kia Rio, which is mechanically similar, mm-hmm. uh, I think the experiences are very similar, and I think that on the highway they feel like larger cars. I think they settle in nice, really, at speed, and they're relatively quiet at speed, too, which I think goes a long way to a car feeling um, refined and larger. Among uh, uh, small cars available today, uh, Mitsubishi, which is, I say, struggling to stay alive in the U.S. market, has been for several years, came out with a new model called, called the Mirage. Old name, new model, inexpensive. I think it starts at thirteen eight, including destination charge. What about a car like the Mirage? Yeah, Um <laughs> I, I want to be diplomatic about the Mirage because I, I've liked a lot of what Mitsubishi has done over the years. Um, but the Mirage is, for people who don't know, is a three-cylinder, uh, and the only three-cylinder on this list of, of, of the of least expensive cars. But um, there, there are you you pay the price for that cheap, and unfortunately, it's not cheap enough to justify it. When you go into this car, you want it to be sort of plucky and and sprightly and, and feel like a small car that. Um, that sort of rewards you for your thrift with a certain amount of uh, just feistiness, and it's not there. It's it's uh, it's just a very cheap car. It's 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 very loud. The power delivery is a little bit weird. The engine feels, frankly, kind of hoarse and, and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, we drove an automatic at, at at Consumer Guide, and and even our fuel economy wasn't outstanding. Um, we had we did not get to forty. Now it was cold out, and and, and in Chicago when it's cold, your, your fuel economy suffers, but it. it the payoff wasn't there. How about the Versa? Another like, inexpensive car. Like the Versa. Um, I think that compared to something like the Kia Rio or the Hyundai Accent, you don't get quite the, uh, quite the refinement, but you do get a lot of features for the money. Um, I drove a car that I thought was a bit of a, a conflicted vehicle. It was a fully loaded, uh, Versa SV with the SL package. This was the Versa Note. Mm-hmm. Um, so the car came to $19,000, which is a long trip from starting around $14,000. It sounds like a Sentra. Yeah. You're, a Sentra price, size, class larger. You are, but, but it does make it standing use of space. The fuel economy mm-hmm. is excellent, and, and the CVT automatic works pretty well because Nissan, among manufacturers, does about the best with CVTs. Um, but at 19 grand, you get almost every feature you would want in any larger car. You get mm-hmm. full connectivity, you get navigation, power, everything, great audio system. So it depends on what you want in a car. It seems like a funny thing to do for your 19 grand to stay in that size class, but for people who want the features, it kind of makes sense. We have to pause here for a short break, but stay tuned. When we come back, we will continue talking with Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, about cheap wheels, bargains in today's expensive new car market. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Here's Rick Hopley. Welcome back, everyone. With me in the studio today is Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, an online resource that includes road tests of new vehicles, best buy recommendations, prices, and other helpful information. You can find them at ConsumerGuide.com. If you have a question or comment, the phone lines are open. You can join the conversation by calling 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. 
We've been talking here about some of the low-priced cars, primarily subcompacts. And one thing that uh, I mentioned in the news segment that started the show is that the next generation of the Toyota Yaris, which is Toyota's smallest car in the U.S., will actually be a Mazda. It will be built by uh, Mazda in Mexico. It will have Toyota styling, but it will use uh, Mazda hardware, including a Mazda engine. And if you look at the Yaris, the sales in 2013 among major manufacturers, the Yaris was the lowest, had the lowest sales among all subcompacts, among major brands. They sold 21,000 last year, which is 30% less than the year before in a market that rose 8%. <laughs> and if you look, you know, Nissan sold 117,000 Versas. Uh, Hyundai, 60,000 accents. And if you look at Chevrolet combining Spark and Sonic, two subcompacts, they sold 120,000. How did Toyota miss all this? There's a big market out there for small cars. Yeah, the, the, that's a great question. And, and this goes back to the Echo, uh, the Toyota Echo that preceded the, uh, the RS. And, and Toyota's desire to build something cheap, I think, was, was based largely on uh, favorable exchange rates because you have a situation now where Toyota's not doing well selling a car at this price and, and they're building them in Japan whereas you know, bringing Spark is coming in from, from Korea so they have a little bit of an edge there but, but more than that Yaris hasn't been updated in a while there was mm-hmm. a facelift when everyone else went new so right. Sonic became new Fiesta was brought in all these things happened and Yaris got a facelift and, and, and Yaris just really isn't competitive and on price they're not trying that hard it's one of the more expensive of the small cars. And and we sort of saw the situation, and you and I talked a little bit about this off-air beforehand, with the Honda Fit, where the Honda Fit was imported up until this point and, and will be, or whatever stock is still there, is the Japanese-built uh, inventory. But they had a hard time with the price point on the Fit. So the Fit was always just a little bit more expensive and perhaps a little less refined in the competition, although it was a blast to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, Fit's going to be built in Mexico now. Right, which avoids a and in, in, uh, import tariff and and uh, also any currency fluctuation. Yeah, and uh, cuts transportation costs. Right. So they're they're ahead of the game now, and the expectations are that they're going to be picking up the game on all these fronts. Mm-hmm. Toyota needs that badly. Um, actually, the Mazda two that exists right now is a pretty nice little car. It doesn't sell especially well, mm-hmm. um, but I think that the next generation of that, especially if they can get some sky active fuel economy numbers going could make some sense. Right. Toyota, uh, in this country, at least early on in the 70s and 80s, made its mark with small, inexpensive cars. And they've seemed to have abandoned uh, this market. You never see commercials or ads for the Yaris. And as you say, they they just have fallen behind competitors as uh, far as uh, technology and equipment on that car. Yeah, they have. And you mentioned that I worked at a gas station back in the day, a service station. And, uh, you know, the car that guys bought for their kids was the Tercel. And everyone loved the Tercel. They trusted mm-hmm. the Tercel. And it was kind of, you know, that was along with their small pickup truck, were, were the cars that Toyota was kind of famous for. They, they, were, right. they were understood to be reliable, understood to get great fuel economy. And if you sent your kid off to school with one, you didn't have to worry about it. And it's so funny that they just completely left that segment behind. Uh, the uh, the way to win the hearts of young buyers uh, traditionally has been through small cars like the Yaris and uh, you know Chevrolet is uh, doing great with small cars Toyota isn't you know and, and Toyota does have an issue with a graying owner body 
I, I'm perplexed as to this strategy. Yeah, it doesn't make sense because we, we, the media attributed a lot of General Motors problems, um, before the crash and, and, and in the 90s to the cars that they were building in the 80s. And if you bought an X car or if you bought a smaller car, a Chevette or a, or, um, something small from General Motors, you probably weren't going back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, right. there was enough warranty issues and enough problems and it just wasn't that much fun and, and the payoff wasn't there. And, and yet General Motors seems to have recovered and Toyota does seem to be somehow frittering away the value that it's had. And you're right, the, the customers are getting older. They're not attracting a young crowd. The, the Scion experiment seems to have failed. Yes. Um, so where they're going to get young buyers from, I don't know. Now, in all new Yaris, could be the answer. Mm. Well, um, you mentioned earlier that the uh, among some of the, the small under $20,000 cars that, that you would recommend, I think you mentioned the Versa, the Kia Rio, you like the Accent. Anything else under 20000 that people should take a look at? Yeah, Chevy Sonic is a lot of fun to drive, and it makes great use of space. I think that uh, um, that's well worth looking for. They, they offer two engines there. They've got a 1.8 conventional and a 1.4 turbocharged engine, but that, that base 1.8 works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, and what Sonic does better than most of the cars in this class is make good use of space. Um, I, I often call it the four Tom test. Uh, I'm a big guy. People can't see that on the radio. <laughs> but if you can put four of me in a car, uh, you're doing pretty well. And it's these high-bodied hatchbacks like the, the Sonic hatchbacks that do that. Ah. Plus, you've got some space behind the second row, which is nice. How many Toms fit in the trunk? <laughs> One very unhappy Tom. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, you know, uh, all of these that you named are subcompacts. Yes. And, and as you pointed out early earlier, you can get a subcompact over $20,000. Let's say that someone is in the market, you know, in that price range, trying to keep it under twenty. Which would you advise as the better strategy, a loaded subcompact, the smallest car, or a step up, a not-so-loaded compact? Say like a Ford Focus instead of a, a, a Fiesta, a Chevrolet Cruze instead of a Sonic. Yeah, Cruise, to me, probably not the best example here because the, the Cruise rear seat I find to be almost useless. It's, it's mm-hmm. especially short wheelbase, and all that space goes to the front seat. So if you never carry passengers, that great. But a car I really like in the compact class, especially for the price, is the Hyundai Elantra, uh, which has a surprising amount of refinement for what you know we understood once upon a time to be an economy brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a great highway car, good fuel economy, very refined drivetrain. And you have a starting price of about seventeen grand. You throw in automatic, you're at about nineteen grand. Works pretty well. Now that's going to be fairly stripped, but you have more car. Right. Uh, w- would you, if you were uh, in that market, would you go for a compact over a subcompact? Depending on what I was doing with the car, I like the Sonic a lot that, that I just talked mm-hmm. about. Um, I do like the Elantra. I like the Cruise an awful lot, but again, the rear seat is a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Odds are I'd go with the compact. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I just uh, I, I look at a twenty thousand dollars subcompact and don't see the value. I, I, right. I see value at sixteen thousand, not at twenty though. So, but that's just me. And you know, it also if, if you're looking at uh, under twenty thousand, let's say that's your 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 price point. What about a used car? Are you better off getting a larger? A uh, used car that's a year or two old for maybe the same money or less? Maybe. Maybe. And I did some checking today to make sure my numbers were fresh just okay. to see what we could do out there in a few different classes at twenty grand. Um, and this is what I came up with. For $20,000, a 
almost exactly. Um, I found a 2011 Chevrolet Equinox. So we have a smallish mid-sized crossover. Uh, this one was two-wheel drive. So mm-hmm. we don't have the all-wheel drive thing going on. Uh, with 39,000 miles on it. So the advantages are you've got a fairly large, roomy, family-friendly vehicle. Mm-hmm. The downside is this one was out of warranty. Basic warranty. Ba- right. The still basic still is powertrain. That's correct. Right. Yeah, so you're out of your bumper to bumper. Um, same price, a couple years older, Toyota Highlander. Uh, this one also, this one's about $21,000. This one had about 40,000 miles on it. Again, this one's out of warranty, um, your, your bumper to bumper. Mm-hmm. So, but that's an interesting car, and also it's a lot more sub- substance car. You've got you've got a crossover instead of a subcompact. Right. You're you're less likely to outgrow one of those crossovers than a small car. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Another car I looked at: 2012 Kia Sorento, almost exactly twenty thousand dollars. That's the asking price again. So you might be able to do a little mm-hmm. bit better. Also an SUV. Yep. I'm sorry. Yeah, midsize crossover. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was four wheel drive. Uh, 21,000 miles on it, and this one had the Kia warranty. So you're still under bumper-to-bumper on this vehicle. So right. that's a fairly which, compelling which choice. Which, on a used Kia or a Hyundai, you get five years, 60,000 miles right. transferred, not the 10-year, 100,000. Right, you lose the, the powertrain. Unless it's a certified pre-owned. Mm-hmm. Certified pre-owned. Gimmick or great deal? I wanted to ask you about that. For those who don't know, certified pre-owned used cars are sold by uh, manufacturers. Dealers inspect them. They always promise to inspect them. Sometimes they promise to recondition them. They give them longer warranties. Uh, say, you know, Nissan goes up to seven years, 100,000 miles. Uh, Chevrolet adds 12,000 miles to the basic warranty, things like that. And they detail these cars. They make them look like they're new, even though they're two or three years old. Worth the extra money? That one's harder to decide, but I, I tend to be a fan of certified pre-owned. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason being is there's, there's the implied warranty and then the real warranty. Um, but the inspection also suggests that they inspected and then repaired. So this car is up to snuff on whatever the gigantic list of things is that they say right. to check out. And uh, let's just assume that that happens. So a GM, if all 172 things check out. Right. The thing that bothers me about that is they say, we will inspect 172 different things. doesn't say anything else, just that they looked at them. You know, but <laughs> but, Again, it's implied. Uh, yes. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, but, No, it's a great point. So I did a little bit of checking, and I went cheap on the first side. Um, 2012 Sonic LT. Automatic, uh, fairly nice car. Uh, Kelly Blue Book retail on that car with uh, twenty five thousand miles on it is twelve thousand nine hundred and fifty four dollars. Mm-hmm. Certified pre owned, that's thirteen six zero four. So the retail value roughly of the certified pre owned program to you is seven hundred dollars. Well, that may not be the value; that's the cost, right, to you for seven hundred dollars. So you're not getting much warranty in this case because that car's still under warranty. So the twelve twelve additional, right doesn't apply to you. But what you do have is the inspection. Mm. You have uh, and two-year scheduled maintenance. So you got a couple of things going on there that still drive some value. $700 is not a big leap for a sense of security for a lot of shoppers. Right. I, I believe, though, on Chevrolet CPO, that they actually add 12 months, 12,000 miles. And that's to the end of the number. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right, so add that to the value point. Yeah. You know, I my recollection, and this goes back to... 2001, in which uh, I considered buying a certified pre-owned Toyota, 
And I remember a dealer telling me it cost 350 bucks. Cost them 350 bucks. That was, you know, 2001. So $700 more sounds reasonable to me for that peace of mind and extra protection. Yeah, it's just, it's a fairly small percentage of the price of the car. Yeah. Now, I did another check, too. I did Cadillac CTS. So I went with a luxury car. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the certified pre-owned began with luxury cars. Cadillac right. was a pioneer. Uh, Lexus was a pioneer. Mercedes was one of the pioneers of CPO. And they've done pretty well with it. So one of the cars I checked was a 2012 Cadillac CTS Premium um, with a 3.6-liter engine, which is a fairly pricey car new. Uh, that was 31.8 without and 33.2 with. So that's a $1,400 bump. Right. In the case of that car. Okay. We have to pause for another break here, but when we come back, we'll continue talking with Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Auto- Automotive on cheap wheels and shopping strategies for a new or used vehicle. Now, more cars, trucks, and bucks on TalkZone.com with your host, Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, an online resource about new and used vehicles. ConsumerGuide.com provides vehicle reviews, best buy recommendations, prices, and other helpful information. If you have a question or comment, the phone lines are open. You can join the conversation by calling 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. Tom, before the break, we were talking, you were talking about um, a price on a certified pre-owned Cadillac CTS. I think you said it was like 1400 bucks more yeah. than one that was not certified pre-owned. If you're looking at a used luxury car, does uh, CPO, certified pre-owned, make more sense or offer more value? It does to me. Um, there's so much that can go wrong with something like a Cadillac CTS. It just seems like there are more systems, more right. audio systems, more navigation systems, all sorts of expensive things that would be tragic to have to repair on your own. Um, so I like it a lot for those cars. Okay, so so rather than uh, just roll the dice, you would look for a CPU, a certified pre-owned luxury car. Yeah, in this case, you're looking at a price bump of about four and a half percent, which okay. which seems like a small price to pay for security. Yeah, you you mentioned that uh, uh, luxury cars tend to have more things that can go wrong. Well, th- you know, that applies to most cars uh, today. That's true. I mean, uh, electrical and electronic systems, not mechanical, not so much anymore, but all the electronics uh, seem to go, which begs the question, on a new or used vehicle, should you buy an extended service contract, what people refer to commonly as an extended warranty? What are your thoughts about about that? Extended warranties, I, I tend to go negative on. My, my thinking on extended warranties is that no one ever tells, sells you insurance that they think you need. <laughs> or that you'll use. Right. <laughs> and, I, and, and I always figure that for the price you pay uh, for that insurance up front, just keep that money aside and hold on to it for that particular rainy day. And if something happens, you've, you're already covered by what you would have paid for the warranty. Um, Which a warranty typically runs $2,000 or more, correct? That's correct. And one of the things, too, and and I don't know if this is clear to most shoppers, the extended warranty does not need to be purchased on the day you buy the car. 
So say you buy a car and, and you're running out of your bumper-to-bumper warranty and it has been a bit of a problem. You like the car, you want to keep the car because you know it, and you've had some problems, you can still purchase the extended warranty. Someone told me that uh, the price goes up on a extended service contract the closer you get to the warranty expiring. Is that? I didn't see that. I, that may be, well be the case. Okay, but but I mean, if you buy a new car, basically you've got three years, three year, mm-hmm. you know, basic warranty. Hyundai is five, you know, um, uh, so you don't have to uh, choose then. I, I right. think you know dealers uh, dealers push you know new car buyers to purchase the extended contract at the time of the car because they know if they don't get you then. Their chances of selling you one go way down after oh, that. That's completely true. And if you've had no problems with the car, you're never going to buy it. Right. There's no way if, if your car's been in trouble three for three years that it's you're suddenly going to decide to spend eighteen hundred bucks to take that out another two years. Right. Uh, we uh, one of our cars that that my family owns is uh, now what seven years old. It shall go unnamed on the air. But uh, <laughs> recently we did have some problems. We spent uh, two to three thousand dollars. On repairs and replacement, like tires and battery. Sure. Tires were, you know, seven hundred bucks alone. But uh, uh, I did, you know, the uh, the math and figured out that what if I had bought a uh, extended service contract when the car was new? Mm-hmm. And one of two things would have happened. One is that that extended service contract would have expired before I was able to use it. <laughs> or, or, or two. I mean, the tires would not be covered, and whatever right. I paid for that contract, I don't think I would have recovered. You know, if I had paid twenty five hundred bucks, I did not spend that much on repairs. So, I mean, that's one example. That's one case. Doesn't mean everybody's going to work that way, but I agree with your diagnosis, doctor. That. <laughs> You know, think long and hard before undergoing that operation. I'd like to add a footnote to that, too, that if if you are interested in the plan, if it makes you feel better and you want to buy the extended mm-hmm. warranty, you want to buy the manufacturer extended warranty. Why is that? Because you, you want it to be an extension of the plan you have and serviceable by your dealer, and you want the, the plan uh, policyholder to work directly with the dealer. Mm-hmm. So if you're using someone else, if it's, it's if it's underwritten by someone else, it might be a situation where you paid up front. You have to make the claim, and then often you have to make the case for the claim. You're going to have to provide information. Oh, to get reimbursed. Yeah. So, oh. so, so non-OEM mm-hmm. service uh, contracts can can be dicey. But um, doesn't the uh, non-manufacturer extended contract give you the option of taking your vehicle wherever you want? Uh, I suppose that's true. It, it dep- again, it depends on the on the warranty. Mm-hmm. Some of them, the the less desirable ones, lock you into the dealer you bought the car at. Right. Yeah, and, and you really want to stay away from that. But there's too much fine print for most people to want to read or have to read, especially after haggling over a car for three or four hours, to just sign on the dotted line for some sort of service contract that you you don't fully understand. Okay. Well, uh, I saw something uh, recently, if I remember correctly, it said that 40 or 45% of people who buy new Toyotas buy extended service contracts, Toyotas extended service contracts. I thought people bought... Toyota's cars because they were uh, reliable didn't need a lot of repairs. I, I can only assume this is because they plan to have them forever. Okay. <laughs> well, but the warranty extended contract yeah. doesn't last forever. I don't. No, a little bit longer, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before uh, before somebody says yes or no to an extended contract, you mentioned that they don't have to buy it when they buy the vehicle. But even, and you recommended that they stick with the manufacturer's extended warranty. Yes, absolutely. 
if I buy from dealer A a car from dealer A, can I buy an extended contract from dealer B or C? Yes. Actually, there was a fantastic story about that a few years ago when, when, when the web was nascent. Uh, there were dealers selling the factory warranty to other people's customers because they could. Mm. They just represented General Motors or Buer or whoever it was. Or I can't remember who the manufacturer was or Nissan. But this dealer, this very enterprising dealer, was getting a hold of lists and selling the warranty to other people's customers. Uh, but you can do that. Yeah, if it's if it's if it's a manufacturer-based warranty, you can buy it from anyone. So it pays the shop uh, for yeah. that, just as uh, anything else. Yeah, and, and and to your point about shopping, yeah, the price is negotiable. Okay, so so if the if I'm sitting there buying the new vehicle, and the salesman says, "Well, we can, you know, sell you that extended warranty for twenty eight hundred dollars right now." If I say no, maybe next week it's twenty five hundred. Could be. Could be. Okay. So, don't bite at the first offer. Absolutely not. Okay. And uh, one thing I've noticed in the market today is that, in some form or another, the one price no haggle policy seems to be spreading. And, you know, not only individual dealers are saying you don't have to negotiate. It's like the CarMax approach. Right. You know, where where they post a price and that's it. You know, you don't, there's no negotiating. But um, in, in, in other ways, uh, General Motors has a sale going on now. And if you look, the price of a Chevrolet Cruze being posted by different dealers is the same everywhere. Everyone's kind of sticking to the same price. And you also have services like TrueCar, which, uh, or you go to Costco, and they say, we'll hook you up with a dealer where you get one set price. You don't have to negotiate. Is this becoming the new way of buying a vehicle? I don't think so. And I think that one price, there are, there are the chains that do this. Right. It, you know, um, CarMax does this with new car, man, where they have, New car dealers, they try to maintain the, the or in, right. in fact, do maintain a one price thing. But I think that for new cars generally, I think there's an illusion of one price when there's a promotion like something at General Motors. But if you were to go look at that cruise at one dealer and then go take the one price price to another dealer and tell them you were thinking about the other dealer, mm-hmm. I guarantee you they'd find another 250 bucks. <laughs> because there's, there's abs- the manufacturer has no control over the dealer right. in these cases. So I, I think that there's often this illusion that okay. one price exists. All right. right. Which, which in the case of um, which in the case of dealers I've talked to in the past, you know, I mean they they pointed out that if I say we have a one price policy and here it is, if that customer takes that price to another dealer, yeah, they'll beat it one way or another. They may beat the new car price and 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 lower the trade in value, right? But the customer thinks he got a better deal, and so that's why they say um, one price doesn't work. Yet. CarMax does it. They have a handful of new car stores across the country, and they have dozens of used car stores where the price is posted, uh, non-negotiable, and on their used car, their prices are higher than other dealers that have traditional haggling policy, yet they've been very successful. Yeah, there are, there is a very large amount of the population that would prefer not haggle. Mm-hmm. I think that they feel like they don't know that they're getting a good deal. And I think that even if you go to something like True Care or Kelly Blue Book, you always find that there are things out there that affect the price, especially in your area, that make, no matter what you see, there's uncertainty. So one price gives a lot of people a lot of confidence, and I think it works for them. 
So it's it's more a uh, a choice as to um, not having to negotiate that people are looking for rather than an outright lowest price? I think so. Yeah, I know a lot of people have purchased cars from CarMax, used cars, mm-hmm. that simply didn't want to deal with it. And they've checked the prices, and the prices that you get there are fair. They're not the best prices. And if you went to a dealer, found a similar car, you could probably go to battle and probably do a few hundred bucks better. But you've spent more time. You don't feel quite as confident about the deal. It, it's, it, it depends on the buyer. What about younger buyers? Younger buyers are used to going into... I mean, their big purchases are smartphones and computers. Right. And, and you know, they're generally not negotiable prices. The po- price is posted up front, and you go online and find maybe a discounter that sells it for a little less. The car buying experience is not the same. Are, are, are young people perhaps going to change the car buying process? I think they are. And, and you get close to something like one, one or fixed pricing or, or one price where – Young people like to shop entirely online, mm-hmm. and and overwhelmingly young shoppers, shoppers under twenty five, under thirty, aren't that interested in the car they're buying. If you're buying a Spark or if you're buying even a Sonic it's or connectivity, you, right? You care about what the car can do. You don't care that much about how it drives. You're not right. that interested in driving. Maybe your father wasn't that into cars, so you're doing all your shopping online, and then you're going to go look at the car after you've seen a price. So more, more and more dealers are doing battle online for the lowest price. And I would think that young shoppers typically are getting pretty good prices. Where they're vulnerable is when they get to the dealer and start dealing with the F&I guy. Right. Okay. Um, Hold that thought, Tom, because we have to pause here for one more break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up our discussion with Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, on ways to save money on a new or used vehicle. This is Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Back to Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today, sitting alongside me here in the studio, is Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. And you know what? I neglected to mention early in the show that in a previous life, I worked at Consumer Guide. That's right. Yes, I Years ago, I, that's where, in fact, I got my start covering uh, the auto industry and uh, left there in a previous century, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we've been talking about smart shopping strategies uh, for today's new and used vehicles. And before the break, you mentioned that um, Gen Y does most of its shopping online, but they may encounter a somewhat different experience when they get to the dealership. Why is that? Because dealers are giving up a lot of their profit opportunity negotiating online. Um, a good online shopper is going to get a very good price. Mm-hmm. He will have pitted three or four dealers against each other for the vehicle he wants, and dealers can decide if they want to sell to this guy or not. But the margin is likely to be thin on that deal. But you still have to pick up your car at the dealership. Mm-hmm. You still want to go test drive it. You want to look at it. And then you have to close the deal. And closings have to happen at the dealership. No one's going to drop your car off. So once you're there... The F&I guy, the finance and insurance guy, has you in what they used to call the box. Mm-hmm. And I presume they still call it the box. Right. And it's in the box that the damage can still be done. You can be sold insurance. You can be sold extended service contracts, extended warranties. Um, and a lot of people don't know that you can negotiate your finance rate. And that's where a lot of people give up money. You have to buy a floor mat protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who doesn't need clear coat these days? <laughs> But uh, you, when, when you were a car, how would you say that uh, things are today, have changed today, 
in the retail car business compared to when you were a car salesman, what, back in the 90s? 91. Okay. Yeah, just one short year. Okay. It wasn't good. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, how, how, are things, how are things different now? Um, I think the big difference is, is, is how much information that shoppers have available to them. Hmm. Back then, there was no Internet, so, so any prices you got, you had to buy. And it'd be quarterly, or if you were picking right. up a consumer we, guide, right. which we is fabulous. To, we used to pack our magazine yep. with uh, with uh, retail and uh, invoice prices. Yep, mm-hmm. and those were monthly. And those were handy, but even those weren't regional. So right. there was even the good information wasn't spectacularly right. good. Right, and, and the dealer could always say, oh, those prices are out of date or they're wrong. That's what we did. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and, and there was no way for the consumer to verify that. Yeah, that's the first <laughs> thing you do is just invalidate the source. <laughs> and people didn't buy multiple sources. They couldn't confirm. Like, oh, those are last year's prices. Mm-hmm. They didn't change them. So, well, know. But now the uh, invoice price for vehicles is ubiquitous on the Internet. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's not a lot of, I mean, the thing you don't know now might be about things like ad fees, you know, dealer contributions to local ad things, but those are small things. And if you're looking at the invoice, it's there. But, um, yeah, the, I think for, a, uh, if you're a salesman, the, the challenge now is probably selling more cars. I think you're going to have to make your money on volume, mm-hmm. uh, unless if, if people are better in, informed. I mean, every now and then you're still going to have someone come in and prove to his wife that he's a man and, 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 and negotiate like crazy and make a terrible deal. But, and you pray for those guys. <laughs> if you're a car salesman, you pray for those guys. My brother was a car salesman, <laughs> and, and he said that, uh, he used to fight for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, over maybe 50 or $100 on the price of the car. He'd just resist lowering the price. And he'd finally give in to the customer, and the customer, he said, would just relax. He'd go, ah, I won the battle. And that's when my brother would go in and sell all the other stuff right. and really make money. <laughs> it yeah. was, the uh, the guy's guard was down. So. Yeah, back in the day, you try to find an artificial floor and defend it like mad, so people believed that that was the floor. And once you let it break, they thought they'd have accomplished something. And that's right. gone now. People can check. So so now, with people have all this uh, this information online available, so they can use their smartphone, but. What should they do as far as uh, driving the vehicle, visiting dealerships, and, and maybe negotiating the deal? Yeah, it, it's worth driving more than one of the car, even if you don't care about the car. And Say you're buying a Spark. You're buying a Spark because the wheelbase is short. You like the fact that you can plug in your, your smartphone and get free navigation, which is cool as heck. Um, and that's why you want to buy a smart. But you still got to drive this car and find out that on the highway, well, it's pretty loud. Mm. Um, and there isn't a whole lot of power once you get over 20 miles an hour. These are things that you need to know. Likewise, young buyers really need to be prepared for the F&I experience. Because no matter Finance what price you got. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, sorry to use the, the, the lingo again. Yeah. Um, but be, be aware of what you have to pay for, for uh, a loan and, and maybe be prepared to get your own loan from someplace else because that's your best negotiating tool on a loan. If you've got a rate of 3.99 someplace, they can show you 7% all day. You've already got a loan. Right. So <clears throat> We had a, a show last fall on uh, the practice that dealers have of uh, adding to the interest rate. They call it the dealer markup mm-hmm. in which they may get a lender to lend you Money, you know, at five percent, but the dealer can mark it up to six percent and say, "Hey, Mr. Popley, we got a great rate for you, six percent." But I actually may have been able to get five. Right. But um, I believe the statistic is that eighty to eighty-five percent of vehicle loans are obtained at dealerships rather than having people go to a bank or go online and get it. 
And so they don't even know how uh, whether they could have gotten a good uh, a better interest rate. Yeah, and there are hundreds of sites online where you can find out what the prevailing rate is for a loan. So there's really no excuse these days to not know what you can get for a loan. Any any uh, advice for you know people who well even people who bought several cars and think they know everything? But uh, you know, let's say a younger buyer looking for an inexpensive car, just some you know advice as to what to be aware of, what to look out for when you go to a dealership. Yeah, my favorite piece of advice, and I think this is the most important advice I can give to anyone buying a car, uh, especially if you're in any way um, apprehensive about the situation, the best tool you have is leaving. Hmm. So if you're uncomfortable with the deal, if something feels wrong about the deal or you can't corroborate something that you've been told, you can leave. That deal is going to be there the next day. Now, sometimes the, the end of the month stuff is true, and the warrant, and you want to make sure that there isn't some incentive expiring. What, what do you mean the end of the month stuff? Um, when I sold cars, guys would take lesser deals to to pad their their their. Uh, oh, I see. Their they bonuses quota, for the year. and yeah. then and then a, you get a bonus if you sell more cars. Right, so, and there so. could be a spiff on a couple cars at the end of the month, so that does happen, and that can affect the deal. But then maybe you wait thirty days and try again. Okay, a spiff. A spiff. Yeah, if there's a car that's a funny color with a funny interior. Something's weird about it, or it's a, it's a higher-end car that doesn't have something it needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be additional cash thrown at the car. Okay, so very an, typical. An incentive for the salesman mm-hmm. to lower the price. The guy that gets rid of this dog that's been sitting in the lot for too long. Okay, so so uh, it actually does pay to shop for a car at the end of the month. It can. Okay, it can. It depends on the dealer, and it depends on the salespeople are being paid. Okay, and um, uh, is that true of used cars? Well, they're still paid by the month, and they're mm-hmm. still based on quota. When I sold cars, every car I sold over 10, I got more money for. Mm-hmm. So my first 10, I got one rate, and then I got more money for those over 10. Okay. And that wrapped up at the end of the month. So, yes, it was true. What's known in the industry, I believe, as a stair-step mm-hmm. center. Yeah, in a way, I guess it was a stair-step program. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, uh, dealers hate, I guess, is uh, uh, Volkswagen was doing this yeah. last year in which um, dealers were losing money on an individual sale, sales at the end of the month, because the incentives that were generated by that extra sale were, were greater than the loss. Yeah, because there would be these incremental back-ending of the, of the deal, so they'd get more on every car if they could just hit, you know, whatever it was, 100 cars. Yeah, so a couple cars would go out very cheap. Okay, well, Tom Appel has been with me today. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. And I thank you, Tom, for joining us and sharing all this free and helpful information. It was my pleasure. It was uh, it was good to have you here. And, again, you can find more information from Consumer Guide on their website, which is consumerguide.com. Thank you again, Tom. That was Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. And that is about all the time we have for this week's episode of Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. We will be back next week. Same time, same station here on TalkZone.com with more information that will help you make smarter choices about buying and owning a vehicle. Until then, please visit my website, CarsTrucksAndBucks.com, for news updates, vehicle reviews, and information about upcoming shows. Thanks for listening. This is Rick Popley saying be careful out there and watch out for the other guy. So long, everyone. 